Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR855 on your AM dial and podcast all over the WWs. It's good to have your company as we go through these covidness times. Um, if you do hear any strange sounds, I have to make apologies. We produce the Dogs Program from multiple secret locations, although one of the Dogs members has had to actually come out of hiding. So if you hear strange noises in the background, it is all thanks to the Epworth Hospital in Richmond, uh, where one of our members is now currently residing temporarily until tomorrow. But enough of such silly explanations about things that haven't happened yet. Um, the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. We are sometimes the attackers of elite private schools because sometimes they're just hilarious. They're funny. We often hear the word about cancel culture and privilege and all this sort of stuff. Jean will be sharing with us something that I found hilarious when she shared it with me, and I think it's certainly worth sharing with our audience. And we're not the only ones that find it, well, just the ridiculous side of funny, shall we say. Um, and she'll be sharing that with us in her press release, of course. What number press release is it, Jane? 856. 856 press releases, all available on the DOGS website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But um, I'll be actually at the end of the program highlighting some of the comments by Gary Moorhead, not about this in particular, but about the problems of TAFE, something we have addressed consistently, regularly, but sporadically at the same time, because TAFE in Australia is a scandal, an absolute scandal. And we'll be putting together some of the pieces later in the program. Uh, but during the middle of the program, we have some interesting voices come to join us here at the Defence of Government Schools. Pussy Solberg is finishing our last of our three-part interview series uh, put on by the Gonski Institute, um, talking about state education in Australia today. Um, and, of course, we have many other things from around Australia and, indeed, the world. But without further ado... I would really find it a privilege and an honour to introduce the world-famous press release by Dr Margaret Jean Ely. Press release number, what was it again, Jean? 856. 856. Tell us all about it. Yes, well, here it is. King's School Headmaster complaining about inequity. Why is it the privileged and advantaged always claim to be disadvantaged. Why have Australians, even to this point in the 21st century, hung on to the egalitarian myth when there's so much evidence in our society of inequality, inherited religious establishments, class distinctions, lack of social mobility and inherited wealth in this European settlement in the Antipodes? And why have these iniquities been systematically perpetuated through Australian education systems ever since the earliest colonial period? Attempts have been made to ameliorate the rigid class distinctions and improve social mobility through our free, secular and universal public education systems. But the powerful and the wealthy have always had to be bought off 
before there's any trickling down of wealth and privilege to the lower orders of our society. However, the current plague has proved a surprising leveling in the area of, of all things, sport. The headmaster of the oldest Anglican establishment school in the country, if you're from Sydney, you know who that is, that is the King's School at Parramatta, is on the warpath, protesting the cancellation of the GPS which, if you're in Sydney, you know is the Greater Public Schools Winter Sports Competition. Because King's School, which was settled or it was set up in colonial times for the uh, Bunyip aristocracy, it is modelled on the Great Public Schools of England that produce the aristocracy like their current Prime Minister. His, this man is very upset because the public schools, he claims, are getting preferential treatment. Why? He has sent a furious email to the parents of the school last Tuesday. And it comes as the schools involved in this GPS, Schoolboys Sporting Association, continue to fight for an exemption to a COVID-19 ban on non-local school sports that would allow their winter competition to continue. So children are allowed to go to the local sports ground and play sport, but children from outside the local area are not allowed to play sport. And the King's School enrols children from all the wealthy people from all around Sydney. So that's their problem. Their problem is they're not local. They are highly selective in their enrolment. The headmaster is called Mr George, by the way. And Mr George has also said that the intention of the ban to stop students from different regions of Sydney from mingling and uh, obviously giving each other the COVID-19, uh, made sense for schools with predominantly local enrolments, such as public schools, because the public schools are local. But it doesn't make sense, or it's a problem, isn't it, for private schools which enrol students from across the city. Consequently, he claims that the New South Wales education decision favours students in government schools while disadvantaged students in non-government schools. So Mr George said that the competitive sport was of critical importance for the health and well-being of his students. And this latest situation makes no sense, especially as new cases have consistently reduced over the past week, he said. So, the school is seeking discussions with the New South Wales government. Now, dogs believe it will be very interesting 
to see whether the New South Wales Conservative government under uh, Berejiklian thinks the sporting privileges of one of the oldest and most elite schools in the state are more important than the protection of the lower orders in Sydney. Some of the comments on the Jordan Baker article say it all. So I'll now turn you over to Dale, who will read out some of the comments of the people who wrote into the paper. Thank you very much, Jean. Dale will will be back um, after these messages. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media is a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Looking for an easy way to keep up with your annual 3CR subscription? You can now set up an annual debit from your bank account for credit card and once a year your payment will be automatically deducted. You can cancel at any time and you'll get a reminder each year before payment. Be a constant supporter of Melbourne's precious independent community radio station and set up a recurring payment today. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Welcome back to the Dogs Program on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial podcast all over the WDBs. We were promising beforehand that Dale would share the voice of the people um, in, this, in, in their opinions about the, uh, the principal of King's College, like King's School in, in, in Sydney, um, complaining about being, having some of its privilege taken away by being undercut by those, by those mean, nasty state school kids doing all their mean, nasty state school things. Darren, tell us all about it, Dale. Thanks, Robert. Yes, um, just some of the responses to the article here. There's one from John who says, You have got to be joking. A private school headmaster complaining about inequity. And I've got to agree with that. <laughs> Ernie's Milk Cart says, Isn't it amazing how many headlines the King's School gathers, mostly praising some aspect of it, its grounds, its buildings, its history, striped blazers, advertising you couldn't pay for. No such focus on the schools attended by tens of thousands of students in surrounding suburbs. 
but then they're only public schools, so they don't count. And then Dan says, but don't have double standards that result in inconsistency, confusion and inequity. That was a quote. He's, he was quoting the principal there. He says, that's rich coming from the headmaster of a school that exists solely to encourage and increase inequity. And then the stone of scone says, the government advantages students in public schools while disadvantaging students in non-government schools. Hello, how many rifle ranges, water polo pools, girls rugby fields has your local public school got? Then Glenn says, why is it the privileged and advantaged who always claim to be disadvantaged? Tony G says, if public schools truly have an advantage over private schools under the government's current rules, that would be an historical first and one which I thoroughly applaud. Phil goes on to say, no rules stopping Kings playing against Parramatta High. It's just that the headmaster doesn't think they should stoop as low as to mix with their neighbours and would rather travel to Armidale to find the right sort of school to play against. That's Armidale in New South Wales. And then S2 says, apart from the fact that Kings and Parramatta High don't play the same sport, <laughs> there's always that, Campo says, soccer, soccer, cricket, touch. I'm sure Parramatta High offers their students a variety of sports rather than rather than just rugger. And Nico says, yes, within the same community as Kings are Cumberland High, virtually next door, Parramatta High, Arthur Phillip High, and a little further out, Carlingford High, Borkham Hills High, and Maryland and Greystains High Schools. Or perhaps Kings could switch to swimming using their Olympic standard multiple pools, you know, the ones they opened to Parramatta schools when the Parapool was bulldozed for a football stadium. Or focus on snow sports with their snow sports coordinator. Or just enjoy rowing out of their boat facility. And yes, he makes some good points there about uh, relative disadvantage. Isn't that fascinating? There is a job, there is a job out there at the King's School called snow sports coordinator. They get paid money each year to do that job. I think that's fascinating. Uh, I think the inequity of this is, is hilarious at the moment. I think it's a wonderful way to bring it. Humour is a great leveller. But um, let's get back to the important stuff. There are other voices here on the Dogs Program that are worth listening to, one of which is Patsy Solberg. He's a Finn who was responsible for the Finnish education system who's come to live here in Australia and be part of the Gonski Institute. And I think it might be worth talking, or listening at least, to some of his words. It's the third part of our three-part recording from the Gonski Institute of their ideas about education in Australia. And this uh, this third part, it addresses some questions that have been um, put to Patty Salberg, Angelo Grab- Gabrielatis, Jane Caro and Diane Rabich. So that, they'll be responding to questions that have been uh, pre-recorded. So let's hear part three of the conversation on privatising education. Well, thank you all for um, that conversation we've just had, but we've now got some questions. We've got some pre-recorded questions, um, and then we'll uh, get some questions from the online audience. If you haven't already and you've got a question, please submit it um, for our panellists via Facebook, YouTube or Twitter. 
But let's begin with our first question uh, from Alice Lung about school choice. Hi, Diane. My name is Alice Lung and I'm a teacher in Sydney, Australia. My question relates to school choice and public education. While many members of the community are generally supportive of a strong public education system and they recognise the value of a strong public education system, many are unwilling to send their own children to the local public school, citing school choice as the main reason. This then results in some public schools experiencing increasing um, compounded disadvantage. So my question is whether school choice can ever coexist with a strong public education system. So let, let me answer your question and, and tell you that I just noticed that my cat is sitting over my shoulder. And <laughs> that's something, if you see a couple of ears on, on that, that side, yeah. that's my cat right there. <laughs> Um, <laughs> Hi, boys. Uh, I think that's a very good question, and clearly uh, it's possible, but I think it's not likely. Uh, what happens with the system of school choice is that those who have the most take care of themselves and their own children. What school choice does is that it encourages uh, an attitude of consumerism, and the consumer always wants to take care of me first, my children first, and then the others who don't have the same advantages are left with whatever is, is left behind. Uh, and this has happened in countries that have choice systems, and that is that the uh, those who have the most resources go to, at least in the U.S., very expensive private schools where the tuition is in the neighborhood of, say, $50,000 a year. Uh, when the state then introduces choice, uh, there's a great deal of segregation that follows, segregation by race, segregation by ethnic group, uh, segregation by economics. Uh, and we really have to ask at some point, what do we want schools to be? Do we want them to be a positive force in society, uh, or do we want them to be the great dividers that reinforce inequity? And I think that the more school choice you have, the more inequity there will be. Um, I think that to the extent that there is choice, I believe people should pay for it themselves. I, I once wrote an article saying, I'm all in favor of choice, but you have to pay for it yourself. So if you want to take your child out of the public system and you pay for a, a private school, that's your right. The state can't prevent you from doing it, although in some states they do. Uh, but the state should not pay for your private choices. And I think that's where the uh, that's where the big dividing line is. We should not be U.S., you, many other nations. We should not have the state paying for religious education. We should not have the state paying for private education because that's the state subsidizing inequity. And I think that's wrong. But it's what we do here, isn't it, gentlemen? Certainly is. Uh, we have a federal government that considers itself the government for private schools exclusively. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Almost exclusively. Anything you want to add, or shall we go to the next question? The next okay, next question, please. Hello, panel. My name is John Goh, Principal of Mary Lansley's Public School. In America, it seems like multinationals have a lot of say in curriculum development, implementation, and also assessment. What impact has this had on public schools? and public education in general. 
Well, I th that's a very good question. The, the multinational that has had the biggest impact on U.S. education is Pearson, which is based in, in Britain. And uh, I can tell you from my own experience working in the federal government that assessment companies, not just Pearson, but uh, certainly Pearson too, they have lobbyists. Their lobbyists are very well paid. They have lobbyists working in at the national level. They have lobbyists working at the state level to make sure that the states continue to use their assessments. Uh, there are dis different assessment companies, but they are all uh, lobbying for uh, very, very large and sizable contracts. What this does is that it's a, it's a damper on any creativity. It's a damper on experimentation. It's... Uh, blocks uh, those districts and states that would, might say, you know, we've been doing this standardized testing for 20 years, New York State being an example of this. We've seen absolutely no improvement over a 20-year period. Maybe this is not the right thing to do. Um, U.S. has a national exam, which is a sampling exam, and we can learn everything we need to know by looking at the results of that exam. It's called the National Assessment of Educational Progress. But in addition to that national exam, we also have, uh, by, law, by federal law, every child is tested every single year from third grade through eighth grade. These, these mandated federal tests are totally unnecessary because we can get the same information from the, the national test. But it's the, the lobbyists from Pearson and from other of these multinational uh, testing and assessment curriculum groups uh, that have kept us locked into what I consider extremely stale thinking. And what I was trying to do in, in my book, Slaying Goliath, was to explain that uh, we've been doing this now for 20 years, the annual assessments, test every child every year, uh, and we, it's produced nothing. And you'd think that if we had intelligent policymakers, they might wake up one day and say, you know, maybe we should do something different. This is not working. Uh, maybe we should invest in families. Maybe we should invest in children's health. Uh, the book that I wrote before Slaying Goliath was called Reign of Error. And the, the point of Reign of Error was to lay out all of the research-based things that we should be doing instead of testing and instead of school choice. And it began with uh, providing high-quality prenatal care. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and there's just a, a wealth of evidence showing that when women don't get high-quality prenatal care, their children are likely to be born with disabilities, and the children obviously will have, uh, their, their lives will be harmed, but then society will be paying for, for their disabilities, uh, which would be way more expensive than investing in good medical care at the outset. Uh, reducing the last night, particularly for children uh, who come from disadvantaged circumstances, small classes are very, very important. But there are also, there's a range of research-based things we should be doing instead of standardized testing. But standardized testing are like, they're like a worm that's eaten people's brains. And policymakers <laughs> cannot imagine. And when somebody said earlier, how come nothing changes? How, Jane said, how come we know the Finnish example. They don't test, they don't give standardized tests. Why don't we follow that example? We have a, a system, a political system, that listens to experts from McKinsey uh, and from other uh, similar management consultant types who know literally nothing about education, nothing about children, but they know data. And so they want, to, they want the big data that standardized testing provides. And our policymakers are in love with data, and the data is worthless. Anything to add, gentlemen? Well, Pearson's uh, motto 
is always learning, which mo most people refer to, that, that I know refer to as always earning. <laughs> it's also been referred to as a mutating giant because it's constantly morphing itself as part of its market creation to drive its profit, uh, to, to feed its profit motive. In the case of assessment, and, peers, and this is where they drive policy as well because of the lobbyists, once you've captured assessment, standardised testing, well, then what you can do is you can then populate curriculum. Mm -hmm. What you can then do is populate teacher development. Mm -hmm. What you can then do is set up your chain of online schools, and in doing so, you've captured the market. Mm -hmm. And that's what Pearson's business plan is, although that's about to change because it's flipping entirely to digitalisation. Mm -hmm. Now, I could talk to you forever about what Pearson is doing in the third world to other people's children, but time doesn't allow us to do no. that. Another, another centre for uh, ideas will do yeah. that. Pazzy, anything to add? No, I'm going to give the floor to uh, Okay. Well, Sorry, we, have, we now have um, another two... May I throw out one other thing? Sorry. Many years, many years ago, I was interviewing a, uh, a professor at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology Ooh. about educational reform, of course, and he gave me a memorable line. He said, let me write a nation's test, and I care not who writes its poetry and songs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, we now have two questions um, about equity, which um, will play together, and uh, they're from Alice Dixon, full disclosure, she's my niece, and Denise Lofts. I'm not related to Denise. Okay, um, here are the two questions. COVID highlighted the intense and deep inequity that exists within, us, within and across our schools. How, could, how should our schools respond to that? Hi, my name is Alice Dixon and I'm an English teacher in the Mount Druitt area. My question today is, how do I and my colleagues maintain a focus on equity when we teach at schools with such a high density of disadvantage, uh, so much so that equity seems invisible? So a lot of teachers in disadvantaged settings can no longer think about equity because we have no experience of it in our teaching careers. Diane, did you hear those okay, questions? Okay, so my, my response would be that, first of all, the best response to equity concerns would be to eliminate school choice because school choice is a driver of inequity. That's number one. Number two is when you're teaching in a school where kids have not had the, the experiences, the advantages, medical care, the, the nutrition, the, all of the advantages that children uh, of, it, of affluent families have, then you have to do the opposite. You have to make sure that they have uh, three meals a day available at school, that they have good medical care available to them, uh, that they have small classes, that they have uh, a curriculum that includes a, a rich program in the arts so that they have the opportunity to be creative and to express themselves and to know that they have a voice and that their voice is valued. Uh, and basically what you have to do to reverse the inequity is to invest resources and time and into the schools where these children are so that they know that they are that, that they matter. Yeah, can I, can I add, add here, and I, I must disclose that Dennis is my student oh. here at the uni university, <laughs> but it's, it's a great question, but I, I think just like Diane said that I think what these teachers need to understand is that they alone, the schools alone cannot fix the, the, the inequities. 
This is something that is a, it's a campaign where we are all needed. The Konski Institute, just last week, we released a kind of an invitation for every part of the society to be part of this. But what the schools need to be very clear of is that there are certain things that Diane was mentioning that the, the government, the politicians, and the system has to take care of. And, and they often go beyond education. It, it's not just about the curriculum and teachers and resources. It's about health care and well-being and social issues that has to be provided if we want to have an equitable, uh, equitable system. But there are certain things that the schools can do, and many of the schools here that I've seen in New South Wales and Australia actually are doing wonderful thing. And, and, and one of those things is that we, have, we need to understand that children have different needs and we have to understand that we, we, we need to address those needs uh, upfront early on. Oftentimes it happens that we only provide help to those kids, whether it's about learning or health or behavior, whatever it is, when the problem is already there. And the kind of an equitable school is doing these things early on. They intervene early and identify these things so that they can provide help to all of these kids. But please don't, don't accept the, uh, the, any claims that schools can fix the inequities in Australia. That's not going to happen. You can do your share, but you have to understand the big picture and you have to be able to argue and ask for other people to do their share. Angela. Well, there's a lot of research that shows that um, more than 60% uh, of educational outcomes are already predetermined yeah. before a kid enters the, the playground. Yeah. Uh, 20% they can't account for, and 20% is accountable, is attributed to what we can do in our schools. Yeah. That's not to say that all of our people aren't doing a great job and how much more they could be doing if they had the resources to do it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Teachers sometimes make a huge difference absolutely. in terms of... Encouragement. You hear that all the time. Everyone can name the teacher who did that for them. We have one last pre-recorded question. Let's have a listen to that. Chris Haberecht, my people are Wiradjuri, Wiradjuri country, um, central New South Wales, from the banks of the Murrumbidgee and the Darling River. Uh, I am the principal of Guildford Public School in Western Sydney. The 12th Closing the Gap report shows Aboriginal children still trail far behind non-Indigenous children in literacy, numeracy and writing outcomes. The report also shows the country is on track to meet just two of the seven government targets to reduce the disparity in health, education and employment outcomes. While literacy scores for Indigenous students have slightly improved in the past decade, at least 20% are still behind the national benchmarks. The 2019 Family Matters reports shows Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children represent 37% of the total out-of-home care population, including foster care, but only 5.5% of the total population of children in Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are now 10 times more likely to be removed from their families than non-Indigenous children. My question... How do we best equip our school leaders and teachers to embrace a curriculum that values truth-telling and cultural proficiency? Thank you. That is a really important and difficult question. Diane, as, a, as a, an American, do you have the answer for us? Because we haven't been able to solve it. Well, I, I think some of the problems we have in this country are, are, are not dissimilar. And I think a lot of what you're describing was discussed by Ponzi in his last answer, which is the schools can do many things, but what they cannot do is they cannot reorganize society. 
And the inequities you're describing are rooted in uh, society and not in schools. So the schools are trying desperately to repair damage that was done to children and done, and done to families and done to communities long before they ever arrived in schools. You know, what's needed is a sweeping change uh, that lifts up families, lifts up communities, and gives everyone a sense of worth and also the, uh, the means to have a decent standard of living. And, and I know that those are very large orders, but until, until society faces up to its responsibility, uh, the schools will constantly be playing catch-up, trying to do the best they can for the children. As for what they can do, they can certainly commit themselves to truth-telling, uh, to uh, teaching children about their own history, about how their world connects to the larger world. All of this is very important, and schools do this. And I think that schools can give children a sense of who they are, a sense of place, and a sense of possibility, a sense of the opportunities that, that lie before them. Uh, but the, the larger picture is the one that will require people who are not in schools, uh, but who are in the state legis the, uh, the state government, the, the national government. Drew, do you want to comment further? We've got a couple of questions from the um, audience. No, just very quickly. I, I think there's one thing we know we should not do with this question, and it's uh, try to implement uh, silly ideas like direct instruction to try to try to solve this problem. There's a study that was published recently here that shows that it doesn't make any any sense to uh, you, you know ask teachers to teach more these kids uh, when the flexibility and uh, and other more creative solutions would be the better way to go. It's uh, it's cause for national shame. Yeah. It's cause for national shame that the plight of our First Nations peoples has been so ignored for so long. Deliberately so. Oh, yeah. um, it's a short source of national shame. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'm going to move to, we have only a couple of minutes left. We have gone over time. We've been allowed to go a little over time. So I'll ask for very brief answers. But Susan from Leichhardt asks, policies like local schools, local decisions, this will be a little opaque to Diane, um, this has resulted in the loss of support from teachers. What can we do to ensure the Department of Education supports the teachers? Well, just for Diane's benefit, local schools, local decision, uh, Diane, comes out of the uh, privatisation playbook. It's the devolution of responsibility from uh, the centre, if you like, uh, devolution, shifting responsibility and ultimately blame. It, uh, when it was introduced, it was introduced at the same time that they slashed significant resources in terms of support to schools through experts curriculum experts and other experts which were able to assist schools to continue to develop on the path of ongoing improvement. So um, what do we do? We, we keep on campaigning in, in, in terms of ensuring schools and principals have the support and the resources they need to be able to do the job that needs to be done. Any comments from Diane or Parsi on that one? Or we'll go, I think it'll have to be the last question. Um, I'll go from Isabella from Western Sydney. What can a teacher do in their own school to stand up for equity and expose government underfunding of public schools and overfunding of privatised schools? How do teachers in their place of work do something about that? Diane, have you got a suggestion? It'll have to be brief. Well, 
you know, I, I'm asked this question often by teachers in the U.S., and I, I will say to them, join the, the organization that I run, National, the, the Network for Public Education, uh, because we try to encourage people to work with others. Uh, on your own, it's very hard to make a difference when, when you're just one person. But when you collaborate and you find that there are many people who share your views, it's very important to find other people that you can work with and you become uh, an organization, and you may be a small organization, but then you find other small organizations, and before you know it, you have a national force uh, where, where you can speak out on a national basis, representing people, uh, teachers and parents who share your views. So I think it, it's about network building and collaboration, uh, but on your own, uh, you know, I guess what I try to show in my book is that there were examples where small numbers of people made a big difference, change the direction of history in, in their city or their community. But in general, it's a better idea if you have people that you're working with and collaborating with so that you have a, a larger voice. Right, exactly. In other words, get organized. Yeah, use Join, your voice. Use your voice. Yeah. Join the union. Start your own uh, organization. Isabel, let us know who you are, and um, we'll make sure that uh, we work together to build that collective voice and collective strength. Yeah. Unfortunately, we now have to bring this um, really interesting and really important event to a close. I'd like to thank Diane Ravitch, obviously, um, all the way from the US. It's been wonderful um, to have you here. Um, Angelo Gavrilatis, um, I just popped in from the Teachers <laughs> Federation in Mary Street, Surrey Hills. And Pazzy Salberg, who just walked down from his office. Um, and me, um, who came from the leafy North Shore. Uh, and... Um, also to the University of New South Wales um, and its Centre for um, Ideas. It's absolutely fantastic to do these things. For all of you for listening, everyone who asked a question and everybody currently working in public schools and in education, thank you so much for everything you're doing. The rest of society owes you an enormous debt. Thank you all. Well, you've been listening to some people from the Gonski Institute who are concerned that there is still great inequity in the Australian education system and are against the privatisation of uh, basic services in this country. We're going to hear a bit more about that a bit later from Robert. But um, this week was a special week in Australia. It was tapered, and the Australian Education Union got out a very special uh, press release about it, about all of the things that TAFE does for our Australian young people. And you might notice that the... Morrison government and even the Andrews government are saying that it's going to be TAFE that leads our economy back. The problem is that things have been happening to TAFE. But there is still a public TAFE, which the students are flocking to at the moment because in Victoria at least it is free. And we're going to hear from various very important people in our community who are great believers in our TAFE system still. So over to listening to what other people have got to say about TAFE. Hi, my name is Akolda Bill and I have recently graduated from Melbourne Polytechnic Preston Campus studying Diploma of Community Services. I really want to give a big shout out to Melbourne Polytechnic as an organisation and as a TAFE for really giving me the opportunity to thrive and 
be who I am, be myself. When I first started studying at Mount Polytechnic, I was never judged. It was never a discriminating space where I studied. And also the teachers at Mount Polytechnic really supported and was there for me to thrive and achieve my goals. So again, I really want to thank Melbourne Polytechnic for all they have done for me to succeed and be where I am today. Um, so at the moment, I am a youth worker, um, juggling multiple jobs, working with young people um, in my community or from different cultural backgrounds. So again, bless, peace and love. Happy National TAFE Day. Today we celebrate the critically important role of TAFE and TAFE teachers across Australia. TAFE is one of Australia's great national institutions. It sits alongside Medicare and the ABC as a true national treasure that has transformed the lives of generations of Australians. For decades, hundreds of thousands of students got their start at TAFE, including my mum. She left school at 13, but she always had a dream of becoming a nurse. In her late 40s, Mum went to Woodner TAFE here in South Australia to study enrolled nursing, and four years later she began a very happy 20 years of nursing. Her story is just like many students across the country, and today the Centre for Future Work has released a report that demonstrates the economic and social benefits of TAFE. For the $5.7 billion it takes to run TAFE each year, TAFE generates $92.5 billion of economic activity and thousands of jobs. And that's just one of the many reasons that TAFE is so critically important for Australia's economic recovery post-COVID-19. But we know the true benefits of TAFE can't be measured in economic output alone. TAFE has a strong social contract for our communities, particularly in regional and remote areas, or for people who come from a disadvantaged background. It's about the hope and the opportunity that TAFE and TAFE teachers provide to tens of thousands of young people and people seeking to upskill. It's time for a comprehensive public-led reconstruction program that invests in the skills and vocational education of workers and young people. TAFE is ready to meet this need, but it must be backed by all governments to do so. That means an immediate additional investment in infrastructure, equipment, staffing and programs. Follow our social media posts post today as we put up information about the Centre for Future Works research as well as blogs and memes from prominent people talking about TAFE. And please go to our Stop TAFE Cuts website for actions that you can take to support TAFE. And to our TAFE members, thank you for everything that you do for your students. Happy National TAFE Day. This National TAFE Day, I like to recommit ourselves to rebuilding TAFE. TAFE must be rebuilt. It must be rebuilt because our country needs it and our young people deserve it. It's been privatised for far too long and it's been let to be gutted right across our country and now it's time to turn it around. Both my brothers went to TAFE. They both got their trades there. They may not have liked high school so much, but they love TAFE. It allowed them to build families and it allowed them to contribute their skills to society. We're going to recommit ourselves to public sector TAFE. I'm a product of public education. I went through state high schools and primary schools in Brisbane, and then, of course, the state university, which is what our university sector is. And what I train in is veterinary science, which is partly, uh, partly uh, science and partly uh, a trade, in a sense. And 
I'm very conscious of the fact that while universities are very suitable for some people, they're not really suitable for everyone. And what's enormously important is that every young person has the opportunity to follow the interests and skill sets that really interest and focus them. And we also have an an enormous need for well-qualified people in trades and all those areas of activity that are so important for our daily well-being. Public TAFE, to me, is just one of the most important educational sectors in the country. It needs to be available to everyone who has the opportunity to get uh, a trade and follow through and become a fully paid up and extremely useful member of society. Hello, I'm Jane Caro. Gosh, TAFE is an awesome organisation and the people who teach there are remarkable and the workforces that they have produced for this country, I mean, for goodness sake, where would we be without TAFE? Um, We've come perilously close to finding out, unfortunately, because of the lack of support for technical and further education by successive governments. I don't understand their stupidity. I don't understand why you don't get the funding you need, the support you need and the respect you deserve. But I tell you what, you get the latter from me. Thanks for all you do. My name's Alison Pennington. I'm the Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work. Uh, Millions of Australians are going to need decent skills and good jobs as we move through this pandemic crisis and reconstruct our society for the better on the other side. It's quite clear that these 20 years of privatisation policies in the vet sector have completely failed. Um, Our skills pipeline has been decimated. And now that uh, instability of the marketised system places our ability to Uh, to reconstruct our economy in jeopardy. So we need a massive investment in the public skills system and that investment has to be put into the most stable anchor, um, most reliable and experienced anchor in in vocational education and that is the TAFE system. Hi, I'm Glenn Fowler. I'm the Secretary of the Australian Education Union ACT branch and on this National TAFE Day I just want to reflect on how important TAFE is for Australia for the economy and for our society and I want to acknowledge all of our TAFE teachers around the country, our thousands of members and here in the ACT the hundreds of members that we have that are TAFE teachers, teachers at CIT, the Canberra Institute of Technology. Have a great National TAFE Day. TAFE has long been a trusted, respected provider of vocational education in South Australia. TAFE lecturers are qualified experts in their fields, providing a relevant and high-quality education for a wide range of students, though budget cuts make this harder than ever. In comparison, there are many providers of vocational education who take public money for their own profit, with little regard for student outcomes. Public money should stay with our public provider. Competition for diminishing public funds skews the focus away from quality education to reducing costs. Ultimately, students miss out. Public vocational education is too important to leave to a competitive market. The coming months will be tough on our economy. TAFE can and must be part of the reskilling and rebuilding agenda. It's definitely time to reinvest in TAFE. We've just been listening to some voices in support of TAFE Day, which was this week. First up, we heard a colder bill, South Sudanese refugee and TAFE student, Karenna Haythorpe, AEU Federal President, Sally McManus, Secretary of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, 
Professor Peter Doherty, Jane Caro, Alison Pennington, who is the Senior Economist at the Centre for Future Work, Glenn Fowler, the ACT AEU Branch Secretary, and Lara Golding, the President of the South Australian AEU. If you go to the AEU Federal website, you could find more voices and more writing on TAFE Day 2020. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate. And stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Isn't that interesting? That's what those people have to say. But I can tell you what Gary Moorhead has to say on Pearls and Irritations, that wonderful policy website put together um, by, by Mr. Menager, it is, of all things. But what Mr. Moorhead says is fascinating. He says, in the 18th and 19th century, a privateer was a licensed pirate. A warship with a government sanction to capture loot and sell vessels of any other country, usually under the cover of war. These days, we don't have privateers. We have privatisation. Now, privatisation of TAFE in particular was egregious. Now, I'm going to give you a couple of comments, just just a couple of anecdotes about exactly what went on with privatisation of the TAFE sector. Well, the first thing that happened was... Sorry, sorry, Jean? It is still going on. It is still going on, but the current system, the way it was, was shut down in 16, but it's still going on. Um, what, For instance, um, the, the ACTE Proprietary Limited, you know, in Avoca, was a, was a privatised TAFE college that had 27,848 students undertake a diploma of digital and interactive games at an average debt to the student of $10,000, and it generated a quarter of a billion dollars, $250 million, for ACTE, Proprietary Limited. 4% of the students graduated. 
get that 4%. The Australian Australian Institute of Personal Trainers had 3,000 or so students undertake a 12-month diploma of business and an average debt per student of $10,000. The Australian Institute of Personal Trainers walked off, walked away with $20,825,000. Not one student graduated. Franklin Scholar was a privatised TAFE college, had 623 students undertake a nine-month diploma of management. Hear that? A nine-month diploma of management. Average debt per student, $20,000. Profit, straight off the top, this is what, this is what the people who ran this walked away with, $12 million. There was not one graduate. No one. The Australian Careers Institute had 808 students. They all forked out 14,000 and more. And the organisers of Sage College walked away with 12 million. Well, they were very wise, but not one student joined them in their wisdom. That was a diploma of early childhood education. And as a result, there was not one extra childhood educator graduate from that course. That's how terrible they were. As well as providing fat-sitting ducks from the public purse for the literally pirates, because they walked away with functionally money that should never have been theirs. Reforms to TAFE seem to have made substantial contributions to actually wrecking the confidence in the higher education systems and skills training in the entire country. If you were a child, would you go to a private TAFE college? Well, if the answer is yes, you're a fool. The answer must and has to be no. As Jean pointed out, this all happened under both Labor and Liberal governments. The Labor government actually were the ones that set it up. It was Gillard. But then, under the coalition government, the floodgates opened. Billions and billions of taxpayers' money. Now, as we look at the ways of restoring the economy after the plague we're going through, we look firstly to reform the skills and training being touted, rightly as a key ingredient to any recovery. While it's critical, says Michael, to return to the main elements of public provision, it is also critical that we get the policy settings and ongoing operation right. No more private TAFE colleges. Education after this plague is too important. And that's all I really have to say because I think that says it all. Apart from what those voices we heard, which are the good bits of the public TAFE system, which was never destroyed along the way. But you've been listening to the talks program, Defence of Government Schools Organisation. We have been on the air for decades and we have to be on the air for decades too. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen because we have to defend government schools. Now, you've been listening to us on the radio, 855, in the car or at home, or you may be listening to us as a podcast. You can get through the 3CR website, 3cr.org.au. But you can also get it at our website, the dog's website, www.adogs.info. 
Until next week, I have to say to all of you, it's been an interesting show this week. Imagine what it's going to be like next week. So from Jean, myself, Rob, and um, the staff at the Epworth Hospital, so it seems, along with Dale, um, it's been wonderful having your company, and we look forward to having you listen to us and our, and our, and our interesting ravings next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.